Hello there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. A resident of Fall River, Massachusetts, Paul Sinawa leads an active musical life in southeastern Massachusetts and the Boston Providence regions as an organist, harpsichordist and conductor. He is director of music at First Church in Boston, where he plays the three-manual Cassavant organ, the single-manual Cassavant, and leads the professional First Church choir for weekly broadcasts on WERS Boston. In recent years, he has been featured organ soloist at St. Thomas Church, Fifth Avenue, Bush Hall at Harvard, and MIT Chapel. Cited by the Huffington Post for his inner sense of creative flow, fueled by an abundance of musical imagination and desire, Paul has a flourishing career as a soloist, recording artist and ensemble player. He was awarded uh, the Doctor of Musical Arts degree in harpsichord from Yale University in 2003. Paul strives to bring the harpsichord to new audiences by creating a spiritual communion through focused interpretations intensified by memorized repertoire. In this conversation, Paul shares his insights from his newest book, By Heart, The Art of Memorizing Music. Let's go to the show. Paul, I'm very uh, delighted that we are finally able to make this conversation happen after uh, a few tries and long, long days of waitings and uh, long, long technical delays, right? But we are making this happen and uh, uh, thank you so much for doing this uh, and you are so generous in your work and with your time and your ideas. I hope our listeners will get inspired that um, that they will want to uh, try your own uh, ideas uh, in their practice. Thank you so much for joining the show. It is a pleasure to be here. Great. So, uh, for starters, Paul, um, let me ask this uh, question, which uh, every organist uh, in in this case might have. You know, um, why? do people are afraid of memorizing music most of the time well <laughs> you know i should i should begin by saying when i when i wrote the book uh my initial intention but it, it has never been for organists and um i give organists a big pass because uh organists play on so many different instruments i i'm frankly amazed when an organist plays a recital from memory because especially if it's something like Messiaen, because uh, the the registration and playing on a variety of different instruments, that's a whole different challenge. And I will also say, to give a pass to organists, is that organists tend to play a lot more repertoire than, say, concert pianists, because a working church organist is playing at least two pieces a week, uh, preludes and postlude and maybe some other things in a service so there's a greater volume of of music but that is not to discount the value of memorization I think for any musician um, but to get back to your question which is really about fear uh, why is it such a terrifying thing and 
I, I think memorization has always been a challenge. I don't think that the that somehow our generation or the fa- past 50 years things have gotten more difficult. But I think what has happened is because of recorded sound, and in particular the sterile perfection of digital recordings has made it so that we expect people to be perfect on stage. Um, and I, I'll extend that to, to video because how many how many videos of performances actually are that performance or they could be a recording and someone is is syncing to the recording. So we have become unhappily and unnaturally obsessed with perfection. And if you listen to earlier recorded sound, um, there are a fair number of errors in those recordings. So I think for today's memorizer, we are confronted with this um, desire to be perfect. So I think that is where the, the our current anxiety comes from. But of course, it's even on a much lesser scale. Nobody wants to make a mistake in public. And um, on top of it, we as musicians spend so much time in our own passion and uh, our own work to make things the way we want them. And as you know, it, in performance, uh, it's never the way we want it to be. But somehow, when something's memorized, the that tension of being of wanting it to go right is even greater. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a good justification for for anxiety and fear about performing from memory. Well, uh, well, Paul, I, I can completely uh, you know agree with you because I get uh, letters and messages from people uh, asking how to memorize. What can I do to reduce my performance anxiety you know if when I'm playing in front of a congregation let's say or even even an audience of different kind and um, you know we all have different method techniques and w- strategies how to practice and memorize which we will later talk of course in this conversation but um, uh, for the beginning uh, organist I will say uh, usually that uh, people try to uh, memorize uh, uh, a piece of music usually um, as a foreign language, you know, like a poem in Japanese, you know, they could understand, f- for example, how to uh, how to um, uh, say the words in Japanese, how to even read the words, but if they can't understand Japanese language, if if they can't comprehend what they are saying, it's much more difficult than to memorize and to perform it from memory. Would you agree that uh, if we can apply this into music and um, how this relates to your practice? I I like what you said so much, I might have to steal it for the next edition of the book. Please do. Um, (laughs) I don't know if there will be a next edition. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, right, the fact is that a lot of people memorize uh, out of context, and this is where, you know, I, I looked at the, my, my own memorization story. Of course, I started as one of those young musicians who memorized music as a foreign language, now coming to it later in my life, because for many years I didn't memorize music. Coming later, I now have all of that language in me, the, the theory and the form and the harmony, all these things. So I look at that differently. Um, but uh, I, I think that's a very good uh, comparison, and obviously the most well-rounded memorization would be one that would take all of the syntax and theory, all these things, into context to make the well-rounded memory. 
Um, yeah, uh, it, it's you know when I first was asked to memorize, I was a young pianist, and the teacher said, "Okay, memorize this piece for the recital." And so I went home and I memorized the. I don't even know how I did this. You know, I, I just uh, uh, probably just repeated and repeated. And also, I wasn't such a good reader then. I'm sure because now I can look at a piece and I don't think about reading music. But then, so maybe the process of learning the piece, there was a lot more repetition than I would do today. That that is a problem today because I don't repeat things. I can read most music without a lot of difficulty. Mm -hmm. But back then. There, right, it was a foreign language, and maybe just repetition. And I, of course, I didn't understand what the language was. I just repeated what I kept repeating for myself. Yes, and of course, it sounded well to your ears. And somehow, probably you, uh, you used this uh, muscle memory, right? Uh, worked, and and somehow, piece got on into your fingers. But how about the performer performance? Uh, did you have any? memory slips or things like uh, um, got under out of control do you remember this time well when i was very young uh i i don't have any memory of how things went i know things didn't go badly i must have just played them but i also if i think back to when i was 10 years old seven seven years old i probably wasn't very nervous and the nervousness came later in life um, so I did these things in as much as I don't remember how I memorized back then. I also I probably wasn't thinking a whole lot, and I probably wasn't very critical of if something went well or not. Those critical concerns came probably with adolescence, as they do <laughs> for any teenager. <laughs> they everyone becomes self-conscious. So once I became self-aware, um, it it wasn't till a, a little bit later, maybe when I was seventeen, eighteen. Also, where where the concerns about perfection came in, and but that's also the stage where I really started to experience having colleagues and competition, and really concerning myself with what other people thought, uh, because my own, for me, my own musical life became more important and, and a bit more obsessive. Uh, up until then, no, um, and it was about that time that I I started uh, studying in, at the college level. Uh, and uh, and that's when I encountered a teacher who became instrumental in my memorization practice and, and how to memorize. I had never thought of it before, and even memorizing lots of pieces. I, I never really had a process, and I could, if you ask me today, I can only say I probably just repeated. And uh, but it was when I got to this next level that I with that teacher developed a process of memorization and that is replicated to a great extent in this book in in many ways it's his book michael Rui is my teacher in chicago mm -hmm. it's the book is really every not everything but most of everything he taught me uh so so then years later when i was in my late 30s starting to memorize again i came back to all of those things he taught me and at the same time realized that there wasn't really anything out there in print that would have helped me do this and that's when I had the idea to write a book about it but uh, yeah so <laughs> I'm a little off your question well you're not uh, off the question but you're deep into the question now because you're completely right because there are 
there weren't any books about this subject, right? And even uh, about uh, practicing uh, music uh, for keyboard organ uh, instruments uh, were, was, was not very, very well uh, known, you know, this subject, for per at least for casual performer uh, or organist or harpsichordist or pianist. And I also remember how I memorized first music. Um, my teacher also, when I was young, asked me to memorize and I was really uh, in, a, in pain, you know, trying to memorize pages and pages, playing uh, from top to bottom this page and repeating hundred times and of course it didn't work. But somehow, uh, miraculously, uh, through lots of hours of repetition, uh, I did, right? Uh, and today when we look back, uh, it's, it's, it's such a, you know, probably uh, too complex process, right? If today we would do this much more uh, um, systematically and uh, strategically thinking about these uh, theoretical things and maybe even use a different system that that we know uh, now there is. But, uh, but earlier in the day it was very, very complicated because nobody really told me anything about memorization. So. So I'm glad right. that uh, I met you, and uh, you will tell us how to do this correctly. <laughs> I don't know if I'll tell you exactly. And the book is pretty, you know, it's it's fairly thorough. I I tried, but uh, <laughs> I you know to, to clarify, there are a few books out there, um, but most of what I found were short articles on the internet with tips and so on, and and they they aren't terribly complete. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, you you said the key word, which is systematic, and I think that any and, and to come back to our childhood experiences is uh, you know all those things I memorized as a child. I don't remember any of these now because they were firmly in they were in my fingers, but not in my ear, not in my brain. Now things I remember to I memorized today four years ago. I can sit down. And recall a whole lot of it because so many other parts of my uh, are, are come into play. So many other parts of my training make up that whole memorization picture. But the the key word is is systematic, and the other key word is patience. Um, once one develops a system for memorization, it's important to keep to that system because, as you know, once you start memorizing quickly, then it becomes uh, a very surface memorization. It's not something that is deep. And and you need depth when you are on stage and something unnerves you and you doubt yourself, which you never should do, but it happens. You need that depth to pull from to find yourself in that piece and find your way out of it so that you, you simply don't stop or uh, or panic or any of these things. You know, the truth is a lot of this is, is about fear and and as we started, you know, it's maybe unnecessary fear, but it is finding strategies to to work with the environment. And, you know, in as much as we have to think about the acoustics of the room, we also have to think about maybe the anxiety of the room, and uh, uh, finding ways to really to really center ourselves and be able to to work with all of our tools to to perform from memory. You know, Paul. Um, it's a little off topic uh, of memori memorization, but um, when you mentioned anxiety, and it connects with memorization as well, I uh, try to, you know, think of uh, performance, uh, musical performance, 
as a way of conversation because you know this idea of musical language and these musical pieces being created as for example musical sermons right biblical stories uh, from baroque period uh, let's say on the harpsichord i'm sure you you play you know like johan kuno biblical biblical sonatas right and uh, these were like really uh, musical sermons for the day and um, if we think about performance uh, as uh, a way of communication uh, with the listeners, with congregation, with the audience of some sort, then our anxiety is, is um, you know, not, not, a, not a big deal. We are trying to project some, some story, right? Communicate something and not think sure. about ourselves, right? Well, and, and I, I address this in the book because, um, you know, there the thing is, nobody buys tickets to a concert or even attends a free concert wanting to hear the performer make a mistake. And nobody expects the performer to make a mistake. When we go hear any concert or or a, a theater piece, we, we expect it to be what it is. But this is the other element of that is is tied to ego. And it comes back to this, this idea of, of anxiety. And back to the recording industry, we want things to be perfect. And I think ultimately, as performers, we need to think of that conversation because we have to remove ourselves, we have to remove our egos from the performance and make it a dialogue with the audience. And, and there are many other ways to think of this, but ultimately, I think a lot of the fear is tied into ego. We want to be perfect. We want it to be the best performance ever. We, you know, and, and, that of course comes from conservatory it comes from composite competition it comes from the entire market of being a musician in today's environment but ultimately it it leads to you know it comes from i think it comes from ego one one of the techniques i talk about in the book which was very helpful uh in my when i started when i came back to memory in my late 30s and and is still helpful today is the use of, of uh, meditation practice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I started it as a way to calm myself and to focus. Um, but as I learned from you know real Buddhist style meditation, that uh, one uh, I, I, again I started it to uh, I got into meditation as a way to uh, um, uh, be in the moment. Uh, I'm trying to think of the exact words that practitioners use, but to to be present, be present, yeah, be present. That's Here the word I'm now. looking. For. Yes, uh, right. So that was my original reason. But as I meditated more and more and became a little more interested in the whole Buddhist practice, I realized that part of being present was also removing the ego. And in doing so, uh, I began to feel the audience as I played, but in a good way, not in a way that they, you know, they're staring at me, they're looking at me, they're making me nervous. They, instead, I was feeling the audience as humans who are part of this, this conversation. And by removing the ego, I removed a lot of my nerves because I was no longer worried about making a mistake. I was more concerned with this dialogue with the audience. And granted, a performance is some sometimes a one-sided dialogue. I'm doing all the playing, but but there is that level of communication, and removing the ego uh, made it so much more possible. It's a very hard state to achieve because I there are many performances still that 
I go and I'm I'm more concerned about being correct than about that dialogue and it's it's a, it's an important lesson and but like you know I will never be uh, a Buddhist monk <laughs> and I will never be transcendent in my meditation practice but but in meditation though one can get closer and closer to the core of the ego egoless self and that becomes part of the transcendent performance but it is a it is a long road I mean look at think of great meditators and I, I these aren't just Buddhists think of think of uh, you know the religious orders in the Catholic Church these 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 people achieve the state of selflessness and it's through constant prayer and meditation so I'm you know if I can just get a tiny tiny bit of that into my performance it's a great thing but it is it is a hard road but sometimes when you're working on something as difficult as memorization it's not a bad idea to distract yourself with a little meditation to put your importance on that practice so that the me so that the memorization doesn't become such an obsession exactly Paul uh, you mentioned uh, meditation focus uh, um, did you do you think that breathing uh, also plays a big part here too um I <laughs> I think that especially for keyboardists, yeah. breathing is always important. Um, I I have made before going into meditation and memorization. Breathing was a, a very important part of my harpsichord playing. If anyone listens to the great Gustav Leonhardt, just yeah. as a start, I mean, there is a player who breathes, so that is important. Obviously, in meditation practice, breathing is important, and in in the context of of, of what I, with, of which I was speaking. Um, Breathing is important in calming oneself, and I, I still feel that pr before I perform, from especially from memory, uh, I do meditate before the performance, and simply that is helpful in calming and and, and getting into a, a good state of mind. Uh, yeah. Do you do you think, Paul, uh, about the performance as meditation itself? Sometimes, you know. This state of bliss and calmness and um, you know presence that you you can even even be so calm during play during during performance. I, think, I um yeah. I I think uh, it's it's a little connected, right? Yes, we we try to calm ourselves ourselves before the performance. But uh, this meditation practice can be transferred into the playing itself. Sometimes I have sometimes. to say, oh, I, I have to say that some of my best performances are the ones where I and I, I hate being backstage. I absolutely hate it. This waiting period. So often, if I'm stuck back there, what do I do? I meditate, and I don't. I can't say I love meditating. It's hard work. And but if I'm stuck backstage for 25 minutes or 30 minutes before I go out, and I'm meditating, when I go on stage, I am in a very calm state and very focused, and I can make it through. You know, if we're talking about a real concert program with 40 minutes and then 35 minutes, I can make it through that first half of the program in a very good state, and then at intermission I'll meditate. It's rare when I I I have that time to do that and it, it's actually been most successful if I've had a concerto appearance. A concerto is 15 minutes, mm -hmm. 12 minutes, you know, depends on the composer and the piece. But but um, you know, so so that's I've been very happy with those performances. But I'll tell you one story. A few years ago, I was playing a Rameau suite and I think it was the E major, e major suite and uh, it's a wonderful, joyful piece. I came out to play this 
and I had meditated, and I played a you know, as I played it like I always play it, and I, I think it's, a, you know, I take the character of the piece, but afterwards someone came up to me and said, you look so serious, and that was such happy music. And I thought, oh, dear. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, the problem is, and, and, and this is true in, in the United States, but I know it's true in, in most places, that you know, audiences come to see, to expect their performers to be smiling and oozing over the keyboard and throwing their arms and looking happy and winking at the audience and being cute and here I was like a monk coming out and playing this piece and I wasn't being serious I was being focused but unfortunately that audience member thought I was too serious it doesn't matter what the audience sees I hope I wish they would close their eyes and listen but you know that was my one negative experience of coming out in a meditative state because someone I don't. I guess they expected me to smile, but that's their problem. Well, yes, they sometimes expect a show, right? A show you put on a show, like sometimes great show show organists would, uh, you know, change their clothes in the middle of intermission, put put um, very very showy music. Uh, and uh, and that's sometimes a tradition. Yes, uh, I- I- not only in America but uh, in in Europe too. Um, but uh, but I guess um, what you mentioned about meditation and calming is very very important, and sometimes it looks that way to to our you know audiences that we we are being too serious or or working very hard. But uh, let them do this, all right? We can't control their feelings, right? So right. Uh, one, I, I should say one thing. Um, uh, I'm, now I've lost my thought. I was going to say one thing I, I talk about in my book. Oh yeah, with regard to this meditation, is I I caution, uh, especially for someone who is new to memorization, you have to be very cautious about talking to your audience. You know, when I played with music, I have no problem talking to my audience. It's still a problem because you talk and you talk and then you play and it's hard to find the focus. Mm-hmm. But I have found playing a memorized recital and then which has become very common people expect more and more that you talk to the audience and interact with them that level of communication i find that very hard to do to to have a conversation and then play from memory it, it when i come out on stage and i'm focused and then i'm expected to talk oh it's it's crazy and and it's you know there are people who do that very well, and those are people who've probably been playing from memory much longer than I have. And but I do find when I am forced into that type of situation, I have to be extremely careful, and to be very well prepared with what I will say. Unlike right now, where I'm completely unprepared with what I will say, <laughs> and um, and and to be very careful not to lose my focus. Mm-hmm. Focus is the keyword here, right? Because audience doesn't know what you have to do this, how to how to do this properly. They are here either to enter to be entertained, right, or to spend a good time or listen to the beautiful music and listen to the beautiful stories you are telling. But you are here to work, right? And to, to work I guess so. Yeah. And one of the challenges, you just said it, you know, they're there to be entertained. Let, let's face it, but a large part of our audiences, it is entertainment. And I think for musicians, especially those who memorize and those who meditate, our music becomes a very spiritual experience. It's I, I talk a little in the book about learning to love your audience a little because they're not they don't understand the process. And uh 
you know, between the audience that wants to be entertained and then your colleagues who are there who might not be in your best interest and might not want the best thing for you, maybe want to hear a mistake, or they, they're, they're there critically. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Uh, and uh, I come back to uh, removing the ego as much as possible because we cannot anticipate what people want, and all we can do is present ourselves as well as we can. It's just it's not so healthy to worry about the audience. You mentioned uh, how you how you don't like being uh, um, you know backstage I, I also hate being the, uh, backstage and hate being backstage so much that uh, before my last uh, recital in Vilnius I just a week ago basically I actually descended down the stairs from the balcony organ balcony before the concert and started talking with, to the people to the gathering audience before my playing you know like like um, greeting them basically and right. that actually helped me uh, lose some anxiety also because we've been chatting like like friends like with although they were strangers sometimes but we were chatting and uh, making a conversation happen and that helped me sort of relax a little bit and then I went back uh, when the bell rang and uh, upstairs and then I improvised I didn't uh, you know uh, play from memory but I improvised it's, it's, it's a different thing I think yeah well I mean I think it's for a memorizer or anyone really it's it's usually helpful uh, for a recital program that the first piece on the program be a little bit something that's not long and something that that can help you gain that focus uh, because we do have these distractions I in the book I talk about backstage people you know the people working in the theater they're sometimes they're they don't care about the recital and they just they're just having fun and they joke and all this and you're trying to be focused so to have a piece a short piece that where you can regain your your uh, focus is helpful but uh, I, I have a story about my my first big recital when I was a student uh, I remember waiting backstage and I was able to see the audience and of course I was a student so these were mostly friends and family and I had this vision that I was at my own funeral <laughs> <laughs> And that these people had come to see my funeral. That's how it felt. So that was a <laughs> strange moment. But we we do have to develop good backstage techniques and um, and, and 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 rituals. I think uh, to 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 make things work because it it is we are working and we're working hard and we have to be conscious of of doing that well. Even especially if you don't like being backstage not to be distracted by that you know as I say in the book don't start looking at your phone and playing games and all these things because you're there to work yes and uh, you mentioned uh, the special feeling right before uh, when you look at the audience I've read some place that uh, an improviser from theater experience from theater background um, sometimes when she's nervous uh, she looks at the audience and imagines the audience to be naked. Naked. Oh, I, uh, and I, I, I do that most, most days. I imagine everyone naked. That's a whole nother <laughs> But then, yes, you relax, right? How can you be nervous <laughs> if they are naked? They should be ner uh, nervous, right? Uh, so, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. 
you know, I once I once told that to my students. They were I had students in the classroom in a music history class, and they were supposed to give papers on you know a presentation. They were nervous. Some of them were nervous. I said, just imagine we're all naked. Well, they had never heard that before, and I was afraid they were gonna they were gonna call my superior for uh, <laughs> right. sexual harassment. And I oh boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes students are you know very understandable, and even though they, it's not uh, um, something they they are experienced to, but but. Uh, they they are still human right and they understand yes. you you but some of my students are human i don't know about all of them <laughs> great well paul um to, let's talk about um uh, memorization then a little bit in detail um when i was studying um, in 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 united states i learned two techniques to memorize and I'm sure you 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 have uh, tens of techniques but uh, probably you use a few of them that I I'm familiar to for example do you um, uh, advise to memorize part by part voice by voice and then vo in vo completely voice combinations two voices three voices when I was an undergraduate um, my piano teacher had required that for Bach fugues mm -hmm. and uh, to memorize individual voices. Now that I'm older and I understand what a Bach fugue is and how it works, I do not like this uh, practice because it's um, it seemed to work at the time because I had not developed my ear and all of these things as they are now, but I don't truly believe, because a, a fugue is not heard in that manner, even though it may be composed in that manner, I think that's a, it, it, it works, but it's a lot of time. That is, if you <laughs> really want to take your time memorizing, do each voice separate. I think that's a little, uh, I think it's a little crazy. I think it, it uh, and it, again, it works, but I don't think it's the most efficient method. And I don't know if it's the most musical method. Mm -hmm. In the case of Bach, we know that every voice in a fugue is accounted for. They're all well-written, they all exist on their own, you can't use that technique on a handle fugue where he drops a voice here and there and uh, and so it, it's a bit special and unique to Bach but I think it is it's a very long road to take that route mm -hmm. I think there are better better ways to do it but you did mention uh, oh well no go on go on you, you were gonna mention another technique yeah 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 um I've heard this technique from George Ritchie, organist from uh, Nebraska, but currently retired, uh, retired living in uh, Portland, Oregon. And um, he heard this technique from the German blind organist uh, Helmut Walker, Helmut Walker yeah, right. who, uh, who taught him in, in Germany to play Bach, of course, polyphonic pieces. And, uh, and because Walker was blind, he also himself taught this way the fugues and the chorales as well somebody dictated you know the soprano part uh, maybe maybe a couple of measures then uh, then alto part couple of measures and the tenor part and then the bass part the, these the same two measures and then he he combined them in 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 his head and uh, made uh, made it into four part excerpt basically 
and then uh, another practice session came somebody of your students uh, dictated to him another segment right of separate parts but he was blind so George Ritchie uh, advised me to experiment at least with one fugue at least so I, uh, I learned C major fugue uh, uh, organ fugue not well tempered clavier uh, BWV 547 uh, very very scholastic fugue and yes you mentioned very very long process not the most efficient one but I'm glad I did it because I know how George Ritchie felt now and I know how Helmut Walch did too. Well to be fair um, we are talking about Bach and I would say I have personally I'm sure there are some out there but I've personally not encountered a composer who is more difficult to memorize but you know we always we always go with the biggest example of Bach and but uh, I think compared to memorizing other music there, there are very few things that are more difficult so if someone is coming to memory for the first time I would not start with Bach and early on uh, in my late 30s and my return to memorization I started with Bach and I had this naive plan to memorize well-tempered clavier and you know I was well on my way but quickly realized that if I really made myself do that so early in this new manner of memorization I would lose my passion because of it was such a headache and it's wonderful wonderful music but uh, first, I, w I don't know if I, I would want to play an entire program of Well-Tempered Clavier, um, so it wasn't entirely practical, uh, but I set too difficult of a task for myself. I can say that uh, memorizing a Bach prelude and fugue uh, will take me uh, maybe even four times as much time as memorizing something of the same length by a lesser uh, or even just a different composer. Mm -hmm. uh, so I I think uh, in academia, it, for its purposes, we all should learn Bach, and I think memorizing Bach is, I mean, the, the rewards are wonderful because of what it does for the ear and the technique and the conception, all these things. But uh, it is it is not a great way to start because it's so, so difficult. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is try to find out exactly what I mean. Yes, yes, Paul, I know. And you mentioned you were naive, right? But I was even more naive because I wanted to memorize all Bach organ works. You know? Right, and, you know, and then there are these people that do, you know. And I, I mentioned Messian at the beginning of this program, and and you know, thinking of memorizing Messian, I think of Paul Jacobs, who was teaching at Juilliard, and yeah. he he's performed the complete Messian from memory, not using the same organ. So that's already way out of my league, and uh, and of course the complete Bach as well. So. Uh, these are remarkable skills and I would say that my book does not address that type of memory and I don't want to discount Paul and say oh he's just a genius and that's why he does it but I think uh, someone who's able to do that is working with a very different brain let's say I have an average brain I think Paul is something uh, a little bit different there uh, to be able to do that so uh, I, you know, I don't know Paul's, Paul's method and I'm not entirely sure that his own personal method would be great for the average person. Uh, I would say that my method is pretty good for an average person. Mm -hmm. sure, <laughs> Who may sure. not be planning on memorizing the entire Messian and the entire Bach and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, and another method that I've heard and uh, 
often use actually even today is um, to memorize in um, shorter fragments but um, like let's say four measure fragment right and then uh, actually memorize uh, one measure at a time uh, and then two measures at a time of that fragment and then three measures and then complete uh, four measure fragment I've read it from Marcel Dupre um, 79 organ choral preludes he advises that or adv advised uh, when he was alive what do you think about that well the in in my book i i outline a, a very uh uh clear uh, foundation for memorization practice and um one of the techniques i discuss is what i call landmarks and um Landmarks are large phrase markings, and or even small phrase markings, and they function like um, rehearsal letters in an orchestra score, where you have letter A, letter B, and so on. And those those are landmarks in their own way, and most composers don't create them. Those are made by editors. So in the memorization process, whereas at the very early stage, one might have to memorize in a set of measures, I tend to encourage uh, that one memorizes a phrase, and that could be eight bars. It could be, eventually, an entire page or a page and a half, depending on what the music is doing. When The landmarks are something that each musician must create for him or herself. And the purpose of me there are two purposes of, of making a landmark. One is the sheer practice of memorizing a section however many measures. But the other purpose of, of making a landmark, and again, you make these yourselves where you're comfortable at these points, is you need a place of recovery. So if you are playing a section of a piece and you have a memory lapse, because it's going to happen, it, we all make mistakes, if you have a problem, you need a place where you can go back or forward to for your recovery. The audience does not want to hear you repeat the same measure 20 times. So what you have to do if you get stuck in the middle of your landmark, maybe improvise a little, and maybe you get out, but maybe you don't, and you have to jump to the next landmark or backwards to where you were, were before. And you can do that with some improvisation. So for me, the landmark has that double purpose, part of the learning, but also part of the recovery. Also down the road, when you are working your music away from the instrument, a very important technique, when you're working... Uh, uh, when you're visualizing your music, when you're thinking about it, I like to work in those landmarks too because uh, it's it's simply not enough to sit down away from the instrument and think through the entire piece from the beginning to the end. It's important to think about those landmarks. So I tend to work, when I work mentally away from the instrument, <clears throat> I work backwards. I'll work, you know, letter L to M and then I'll do what comes before L a K to L mm -hmm. and then you know and working in reverse order C to D and then B to C and then A to B so that I always retain those landmarks because in some ways knowing your landmarks is more important than knowing the notes because the landmarks are the pillars that are going to help cre create the entire illusion of the piece uh, what an excellent idea to re really to segmentize the piece into into these um, as you say landmarks and you can even learn them in 
accidental order right uh, yes actually random order right and even it's 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 great if you know if you know letter m and then if you can jump to letter d for example very random order right um, right it's, it's it's really deep knowledge of the piece if you can do that because always we we tend to even when we memorize and perform we play from the beginning until the end right, right. and well, that's not not something uh, very deep what one thing i comment on in, in in the book is is uh the difference between playing a solo recital versus a concerto in a concerto you do play beginning to end because the orchestra keeps playing so <laughs> if you have a memory lapse in a concerto and you're playing the orchestra keeps going you can catch up to them but in a solo recital if you're playing a piece you can go backwards so in a solo piece it's very easy to to get stuck in a loop if you can't find your ending you know that's that is a problem at least in the concerto you're always moving forward but um but you are right to to understand everything and and about landmarks when you're first learning a piece let's say you have a four part fugue your soprano let's say it starts soprano and then alto tenor bass your first soprano fugue subject you might call that a landmark, and then when the alto comes in, you'll learn soprano alto as another landmark, and then tenor, and so on. But by the time you really know the piece, you may consider that entire exposition of soprano alto tenor bass up until the first real episode, you might call that one big landmark. Because the truth is, by the time you've got those four parts together, you're pretty solid. You're not going to drop that in a performance. Um, so your landmarks don't have to be micromanaged on a very small scale. I think as a piece gets learned, the landmarks get bigger and bigger uh, as you conceptualize the piece. Right. Do you, Paul, advise to transpose the piece also in practice purposes? I, I have never done that as part of my memorization practice, but I can tell you that when I know a piece very well, the act of transposition, I would say, would not be terribly difficult. Um, of course, that's easy to say because I don't do it. But um, uh, I, I think it's a it's a good technique. There's so many, you know, in many ways, memorization we is a process of keeping ourselves entertained with the process. Mm -hmm. So, if one wanted to check transposition uh, as much as jumping around landmarks, there these are all techniques that can be useful to to the process i would just be careful that the process doesn't become the goal and that the goal is in itself memorization do we really need to transpose a piece probably not but it, it can be helpful um as part of, and, and that is a technique that might be more valuable doing away from the instrument in your mind mm -hmm. because why do we why do we really need to know new fingerings for a piece you know which is going to happen with a transposition may not be the most useful a little bit like memorizing separate voices you know it, it, it can help um, but uh, you know above all with all of these techniques including landmarks uh, I advise keeping a notebook uh, a practice log as I call it so that uh, you, you mentioned Helmut Walcher and the process of learning a few measures and then in the next session a few more measures well, if you don't write this down, you're not necessarily going to remember what you did the last time. Mm -hmm. I am compulsive about this. I, I, I enjoy practicing, but I don't always want to practice. So I use a practice log and a timer so that I know exactly what I intend to do. When I, and this is good for any pra practicing, even if you don't memorize, is 
you know, you, let's say I have an hour to practice. It's a busy day. I can only devote this much time. Before I begin, I take out my log. I write down how much time I have, how much I'm going to do, and what I'm going to do. I look at yesterday's practice session, what I plan, planned on doing that day, and I mark it out in terms of time. It's so easy to get absorbed in the totality of a piece of music. So if you say, I'll do this for 10 minutes, and this for 5 minutes, and this for and all of this, uh, and breaking up the practice session in a very organized manner, I find that the result is a real efficiency that you'd be surprised at how much quicker things come because it's easy to get uh, obsessed with this, this cycle of doing the same thing over and over again. And if you break it into manageable sections, the time goes faster, it's more organized, and then you actually have a written record of, where, of what you did. Uh, yes, and it's like a diary, right? Your your practice diary. Um, it helps you remember things of what you did one month ago, right? One year ago, even. Um, right, and I, I used my practice log years later to come back to see how did I practice this piece? Because I use my notes, and I, if I'm doing a big piece like a concerto movement, I will organize my landmarks thematically and all this and I use that in the diary so I can come back to something from years before very very useful also it's useful with a distracted mind which is a big part of practicing as you're thinking of other things if something enters your mind you can write it down and you don't have to stop your practice session like oh I forgot to feed the cat so you write that down of course the cat would tell you too but you can write that down and then take care of it when you take a break from practicing. Yeah. And I should mention, I include my breaks in the log too with a timer. So I say, I'm going to do 20 minutes and then a five minute break. Because if I don't, if I just say I'll do 20 minutes and then take a break, that break will become two hours before I know it. <laughs> I and because and then I'm looking at Facebook or I don't do Facebook anymore because it's such a distraction. But, um, you know, to time your time away Otherwise, your day is gone. And if you have a limited time, uh, which is sometimes easier because you, when you have a closed window, you don't have the entire world in front of you, it's a little bit easier. So to be very specific with timing and what you intend to do and, and then your goals, like what are your landmarks going to be? Or, you know, and we have to remember too, when we're learning music, we're learning a number of pieces and they're all at different stages. So the practice log will help you quantify what you are doing with all of these pieces. You might, in your practice session, you might want to simply play through a piece once, a piece that you learned a week ago. Put that in, and how long will it take, and then you're done with it. Um, but to be deliberate in your in your actions. Yeah, systematic too. Great. And uh, Paul, um, what about memorizing away from the instrument, on the table, for example? just looking at the music. Yeah, this is, um, I would say, as important of a technique as memorizing at the instrument. Mm -hmm. And I start my, I call it mental work, but it's, it's that's simple, oversimplifying, but I'll use that term uh, since I use it in the book. I start my mental work at the beginning. So what I will do, let's say a brand new piece and I've never heard it before, which is the hardest way to go. I don't, I do not recommend listening to recordings to learn a piece, but the fact is that if you have a piece like that you've heard, you know, uh, many many times by other performers, it's easier to memorize because it's in your ear. But let's say you have a brand new piece, 
or even a piece you've heard. It's the it's Monday morning, the first thing you're doing. So I get the practice log. The first thing I say is I'm not going to spend a day on this because I will go crazy and you can't retain that much memory. So let's say I'm going to sit down first at the table and let me I may not know where to put my landmark yet. So let's say I'll look at the first page of the piece. And I'm going to do this for five minutes. Uh, and then I will try it at the instrument for maybe eight minutes. And remember, I use a timer for these things so I can be very precise. I would use more time at the instrument because mental work is very hard and it takes a tremendous discipline and it's not the funnest thing to do. So what I will do is I will set a metronome marking all the way from the beginning, a very slow metronome, and I will sit at the table with that metronome and the timer. Uh, fortunately, these things are all on smartphones now, so you don't need all these tools. And I will look at the score, and I will if go through it up to that landmark, just that length that I had said I would do, and maybe look through it, try to close my eyes to work it without the score, if at all. Just get a vision of this. Then I will go to the instrument, usually a slightly faster metronome marking at the instrument with a timer and and do this. And as days go on, this process becomes faster. It becomes certainly at the table. Uh, I, start, I try to work with my eyes closed to visualize the music. Um, and then as I work at the instrument, uh, then at this point I can start working these passages from memory and eventually this becomes a, on a big scale. One, one thing I should say I use at the instrument rather than have the music in front of me I have a music stand next to the instrument so that I don't get in the habit of looking at the score mm -hmm. that I try to really work away from the score and then I can look over my shoulder uh, at the music. You can't do that at the very beginning, of course, but it is a technique I use. So I'm employing mental work throughout the entire process. And when it comes to the recital, I will, uh, I will actually spend more time away from the instrument than at the instrument because I don't need to play this music so many times. I know how to play it. I need What I need to do is be able to visualize this away from the instrument because when you're on stage, that's all you have. Of course, you have the, the, the tactile, the digital memory, and all those things, too, in your ear. But the one thing that is the most solid is going to be your memory, I feel. And so that it's also the hardest thing to work. So I tend to – my ratio is maybe two to one before a recital, two times as much away from the instrument as at the instrument. And by the time it's a recital, that's not a bad thing because maybe you'd rather be sitting in the garden drinking a coffee – and doing this, and I'll sit outside with a metronome and a timer in the summer, and I'll go through my music, then I go in the house and I play it, and then I go back outside. It's a, it's a nice process when it's learned. Uh, but the early stages, obviously, you're, you're going between the instrument. It's good exercise, too. You're not sitting all the time. Yeah, yeah, Paul, you're completely right. And um, I'm very conscious of your time now, and um, don't uh, don't want to... Uh, keep you too long in this conversation but uh, one of the close uh, closing questions I have is about uh, analysis of the piece you know because it's pro it's probably connected with memorization to the more you can analyze the piece theoretically uh, and harmonically and uh, um, f for structurally the better probably your memorization
implementation process will be. So, how early in the practice do you advise to do this? Well, because I'm talking about landmarks, you are already using some kind of aural analysis to just hear the phrase and so on. Um, I don't do a hard analysis of most pieces. Um, I, I, I think ultimately, I, that is, I don't need to. When the, you know, as I'm learning the piece, it's obvious to me what when the piece is moving to a different key and so on. I don't feel that. I think maybe a younger, less experienced player might need to do that. But I most certainly don't play a piece and think, oh, the harmony is now tonic. The harmony is now subdominant. I don't, I don't map out in a strict harmonic analysis. I think that's, uh, it's, it can be helpful, but I think it's a, a bit of a waste of time. In spite of those years of music theory, I don't need to do it. Because we hear music on a arched, larger scale, I think, than this micromanagement. Now, if there's a passage that is a real problem, I will analyze the two measures and so on and just be really specific if I can't really hear it or something. But um, when I, I will say that when I work on a concerto, specifically Bach concertos, because Bach is squirrely. He never, he never is very, uh, uh, he's never the same twice, you know, it drives me nuts, but it's why the music is so beautiful. So in a concerto movement, I will be more analytical about how the return, it's the issue with concertos of Bach is how the ritornello enters and exits. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes the ritornello is complete, other times it's partial, and other times you enter in the middle of a ritornello. And so, so there I, and also because ritornelli in a concerto function as their own landmarks. So it's important to know if a ritornello is in the tonic or the dominant or subdominant. Those things are important. Um, but uh, I will say that the process of memorization has made my analytical skills much better in as much as they've, it's made my ear so much better. I can hear better at the instrument. I can improvise better. All of this is better. There's, there's, a, re there's a, a good reason why old school teachers forced all their students to memorize. It's less common now, but back then, there's a great reason. It, it is the best teacher. It's better than a classroom to, to memorize your music because all of these things uh, that you may have learned come into play. So it forces you to do all the good things you learned before. And uh, it's, it's, there is good reason why Czerny and Beethoven played every morning uh, complete uh, uh, well-tempered clavier by memory. <laughs> yes, but I'm no Czerny or Beethoven, but someday, yes, someday. But, but you see the connection here, oh, uh, yes. because, of course, they were creators, the composers and improvisers, and they learned from the masters, of course, uh, who, who, who came before them, um, and uh, they tried to, uh, to, to keep this musical model uh, ahead of them in front of them actually and uh, keep in their brain as well so so that connects to your story too so uh, paul i'm so grateful to you that you shared this information today with us so generously and inspired hundreds of people around the world today and um, can you tell our listeners how they can find you and your book online Yes, we, we should do that. The book is available uh, from Amazon. Uh, and, uh, of course, they can go to any bookstore to request the book if it's not in stock. Um, 
but through Amazon, the, you can buy a print version. I also have it available on Kindle, and uh, I believe it's available for other electronic readers. The book is called By Heart, The Art of Memorizing Music, and nobody will ever spell my name correctly. So if I say Paul Sinawa, you're going to have a tr hard time getting that. But if you look up By Heart, The Art of Memorizing Music, you could also go to Amazon or any even a Google search, I'm sure, and just look up Memorizing Music. And I, I imagine the book uh, will appear. It's uh, it's short. It's in about 100 pages or so, a little less, and not terribly expensive. And uh, I, you know, I, I intended it to be something of a handbook for people and a, a good guideline. And um, it, the book is doing well. So there is certainly a need for this type of book out there. And, and I, I got a little lucky in writing a book that not a lot of people have written about. And uh, it, it's generated some nice interest. So, so there your, you go. Your, your, your website is... Uh, can, can you spell your website too? Oh, well, it's my last name. So, you know, I'm, obviously I'm hard to find. It is Paul, P-A-U-L, and my last name is So P-A-U-L-C-I-E-N-N-N. IWA dot uh, com. Great, great. People uh, will find you, and I'll make sure I will include these descriptions, um, these links into the description of this podcast too. Thank you. So thanks so much, Paul, for this conversation, and keep up the good work and your research and your performance and your creativity. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I'm glad we finally got the technology to work. And uh, have a wonderful new year. Yes, thank you so much. Have a great 2016. If you liked this conversation, I encourage you to visit my blog, Secrets of Organ Playing, at organduo.lt, where you will find lots of insights, practical advice, and training for every area of organ playing. You can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vida Spinkavitus, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you online really soon.